In the passage we studied last Sunday, Peter focused on the matter of remembering. As I mentioned last week, this didn't come out of the blue. If you look at verse number 9, it points, as, it points to the consequences of failing to make every effort to add the virtues that Peter had listed. If you look at verse 9, but if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. The three consequences of failing to do this are nearsightedness, blindness, and amnesia. That is to say, if one does not pursue the virtues listed in verses 5, 6, and 7, one will be blind to the present, nearsighted regarding the future, and mindless or forgetful of the past. And what this implies, I think, rather strongly, is what it means to be a Christian, which is what chapter 1 is about, is to be one who remembers. And this is what Peter writes about in verses 12 through 15. We studied this last week, but I'd like to read it again. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. In the NIV, we find Peter giving three R's. Conveniently, in verse nine, uh, in verse 12, remind in verse 13, refresh your memory. And then in verse 15, remember. Rather than review everything that we looked at last week, I would simply mention several things. First of all, memory ha- plays an important role among the people of God. In the Old Testament, we see, yes, Passover, you're supposed to remember. But even the Sabbath, remember that you were slaves in Egypt, we find in Deuteronomy. And the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is to be a day of remembering. In the New Testament, preaching is for the purpose of reminding, but so is the Lord's Supper, which we have just celebrated. Do this in remembrance of me. Secondly, remembering is to be corporate or communal. It is not only or even primarily an individual action. In fact, what it means to be a Christian is not primarily an individual action or activity. Together we are to remember. We are to have a collective memory. We are to remind each other. And then the third thing is to be reminded or to remember something means that you you must know it in the first place. Um, As Peter puts it, that you must be firmly established in the truth. So what Peter writes in this letter is not so much instructional. Someone say that it's not at all but rather it is a case of reminding, of refreshing the memory so that they would remember. And he does this to combat the heresy and the false teachers, which we will see in chapter 2, the Lord willing. What is it that Peter wants to remind his readers of? Well, that is what he writes of today in verses 16 through 21. But before looking at at the text, I think we should consider how some non-believers or disbelievers view the Christian faith. There are those who are not antagonistic to the Christian faith. Instead, they, in fact, see it as a useful tool uh, for a sense of personal well-being, an ethical system, for social control. It's better when people follow what the Bible teaches than if they don't. Uh, Winston Churchill uh, wrote when he was a younger man, One of these days, perhaps, the cold, bright light of science and reason will shine through the cathedral windows And we shall go out into the fields and seek God for ourselves. The great laws of nature will be understood. 
our destiny and our past will be clear. We shall then be able to dispense with the religious toys that have agreeably fostered the development of mankind. Until then, anyone who deprives us of our illusions, our pleasant, hopeful illusions, is a wicked man and should, I quote my Plato, be refused a chorus. In other words, to Winston Churchill, Christianity was not true, but it was very, very helpful. It was a set of illusions, but at least they were agreeable illusions and let's live our lives. But when science finally breaks through, then we will be able to break the chains of religion. To him, it was a useful tool for social control. And he seemed willing to wait until it died a natural death and it was no longer needed. Those are not the type of people that Peter is dealing with in chapter 2. There are those who are absolutely antagonistic. They desire to kill the illusion before it does any more damage. People who find the gospel message to be restrictive and a lie. People who offer pleasure and freedom, chapter 2, verses 13 and 19. People who have made up their own stories, chapter 2, verse 3. And those who secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord. Against such people, Peter writes what we find in verses 16 through 21, to defend the truth and the authenticity of what he preaches. But I would argue that what he writes in these verses, we can also take to heart for those who are not antagonistic, but who simply see Christianity as one option among many. Something that's kind of nice. Yeah, there's some strange stuff, but for the most part, it's better if you live as a Christian than if you don't. I'm reminded of Voltaire, the French writer and philosopher, who rejected the Christian faith, but absolutely insisted that the house servants follow the Christian faith because it was you know, that way that you could keep them under control. They would live better lives. He himself rejected it, but those who were not as educated as him should continue to follow it. To answer false teachers and their false teaching, Peter presents two sets of witnesses. Verses 16, 17, and 18, the New Testament apostles, and then 19, 20, and 21, the Old Testament prophets. It's worth noting there is something to Peter's approach here. One of the principles in Mosaic law, I think one that we've lost sight of, is that there had to be two witnesses for a person to be convicted. Deuteronomy 19.15. This is not the only place it's found. It's found throughout the Torah. One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus accepts this principle in the matter of what is now known as church discipline. Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two along or two others along so that, and then in quotation marks, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Paul used it as well in 2 Corinthians 13. Uh, this will be my third visit to you, he writes. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, uh, this is my third time and I'll be telling you the same thing that should establish it as being true. So also, as Peter makes a case for the truthfulness of the Christian faith, he calls upon two sets of witnesses, not just one, but two. Those from the New Covenant 
and those from the Old Covenant. Follow along, if you would, as I read, beginning in verse 16. We do not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you would do well, you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter and his followers are accused of serving up cleverly invented stories. The phrase there, cleverly invented, is a Greek term for what we would call a quack doctor. And so Peter and the apostles are seen as religious quacks, that they are peddling something that, in fact, is not true. And the implication is, if it's not true, then the gospel is not to be believed. In our time, I think the same accusation is made, uh, that the New Testament, particularly the gospels, are seen as containing stories that are of some value if you could just get rid of all that supernatural, miraculous stuff, um, and, and then there's something that maybe we could use to apply to our lives. When we get to chapter 3, we will see that it is the return of Jesus, the second coming, as it is called, that is rejected by the false teachers. In verse 4, where is this coming he promised? Well, one of the tools, one of the instruments to call into question the second coming of Jesus is to call into question the first coming, the incarnation. Sure, there was a man, a peasant in Palestine. He lived in Nazareth named Jesus, first part of the first century. He was a teacher, maybe a healer, but little more. Peter seeks to counter this when, we are, when he says, when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This refers to the incarnation, the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in preaching the gospel, Peter told the people about the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're more familiar with Peter's writing about the power of Jesus. We've seen that earlier in this chapter. But what about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? The word that Peter uses, those of you who are familiar with the New Testament and with New Testament Greek, is a familiar word, parousia. Um, this is a word that is generally used in the New Testament with regard to the second coming of Jesus. But I do not think that this is what Peter is referring to here. He's referring to when Jesus came into the world through the Virgin Mary. I think it's there in the back of his mind, the second coming, but here he's talking about the incarnation. You see, parousia has two meanings. The first is the coming of a hidden divinity who makes his presence felt by revelation of his power. The second is the official term for a visit of a person of high rank, especially of kings and emperors visiting a province. I would argue that it is the second meaning that refers to the second coming, but it is the first one, the revealing of a hidden divinity that refers to the incarnation. As I mentioned earlier in chapter 3, verse 4, 
They say, where is this coming? He promised. That's the word parousia that is used again. But see, they're connected. Because if you can deny the first, the incarnation, then you can deny the second, the return of Jesus. If you affirm the first, that Jesus came with power, then you can affirm the second, that one day he will return in the same way. If you're Peter, you might be wondering what event, because you can't repeat everything from the Gospels, and at the end of John, John says, if we, if we wrote down everything that Jesus did, the world could not contain the books. So if you have to pick one event, what event would you select that would best demonstrate the reality of Jesus, the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? He chooses the event on the Mount of Transfiguration, as it is known. So in verses 16, 17, and 18, we have first the Apostles' evidence. The event that he writes about is mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels. John does not record it, but it is there. To me, rather than giving the specifics, it is the background to what he writes. Um, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's from John 1. To me, that, that, in John's mind, he is thinking of the Mount of Transfiguration. And when you begin 1 John chapter 1, I think it makes much more sense when you think in terms of the event on the Mount of Transfiguration. It is an incident, in my opinion, that Peter's readers know about. And that's why he doesn't give a lot of detail. There are a lot of things he leaves out that personally I wish he had included, but they're in the Gospels, and so why should he repeat it? Rather, he makes reference to that event so they can go back and look at it for themselves. I think that it is very possible that Peter's readers already have a a copy of one of the Gospels, if not more than one. I just want to read to you from Matthew's account. Uh, when he talks about what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's found in Matthew 17, beginning at verse 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then appeared before them, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As Peter briefly refers to this incident, he points out two things. What the apostles saw and what they heard. What they saw in verse number 16 is the majesty of Jesus. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. As Matthew records it, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Mark writes, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. In Luke, he tells us that the appearance of his face changed 
and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. It is worth noting in each of these Gospels, and if you know anything about the synoptics, they're not always organized the same, but in every case, the incident before the Mount of Transfiguration, the chapter before, we have Jesus telling his disciples that the Son of Man is going to come in the Father's glory with the angels. Next chapter, we see Jesus with the Father's glory. He's transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John see Jesus in his glory. Peter's not finished speaking of the majesty. Um, We will see that more in a bit. There is something that Peter doesn't comment on. He doesn't mention, and I sort of wish he had, but it is mentioned in the Gospel accounts. And again, perhaps that's why he doesn't. It was not simply that Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, but there Moses and Elijah appeared and they were talking with Jesus. Moses, the lawgiver, Elijah, the prophet, representing the the revelation of God in the Old Covenant. There they are speaking to Jesus, who will, in fact, inaugurate the New Covenant. So this is what they saw. And what did they hear in verses 17 and 18? They heard a voice, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Matthew records this incident as the voice coming from the cloud. It is from the cloud that the father speaks. This is very Old Testament. This is what we see in the Old Testament. The cloud of light by day to guide Israel. The Shekinah glory, the cloud that comes on the tabernacle and then fills the temple when it is dedicated. It is from this cloud, from this majestic glory, that we have a voice saying, this is my son whom I love. This echoes passages we find elsewhere. In Psalm 2, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And then the baptism of Jesus. In fact, had Peter not mentioned verse number 18, we might have thought he was referring to the baptism of Jesus. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. Interestingly, in the baptism, the witnesses both saw and heard, just as the three apostles on the Mount of Transfiguration. I find it intriguing that Peter refers to this mountain as the sacred mountain. I think the first thought that came to mind was Moses, sacred mountain, Sinai. It seems appropriate that Peter would do this. It was there that Moses gave the law. But there is another mountain in the Old Testament. There are many mountains in the Old Testament. But there is one in which we see a father and a son. It is when Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice him. It is intriguing because when God first tells Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac, he says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And here on the Mount of Transfiguration, God says, this is my son whom I love. And in fact, he would be sacrificed in our place. Isaac, a ram, took his place, but Jesus took our place on the cross. So this is the first set of witnesses, the apostles, the New Testament. 
The second set are the prophets and their evidence found in verses 19 through 21. The word of the prophets, specifically, which is a standard way of referring to Scripture, the Old Testament. Peter knows that the apostles did not make up their teaching any more than the Old Testament's prophets made up theirs. Perhaps it would be better before we get into this to get something out of the way. In verse number 19, what does Peter mean by this phrase, made more certain? Is he saying that the incident on the Mount of Transfiguration made the word of the prophets more certain? Or that the word of the prophets made what happened there more certain? I've told you before, and I hope you remember, one cannot understand the Old Testament properly without the New Testament. And one cannot understand the New Testament properly without the Old Testament. We need both of them to understand what God is saying. The question is, which is more certain? Or as the ESV puts it, more fully confirmed. I would say it is the New Testament. But it stands on the Old Testament. So as Peter makes a case for who Jesus is, he doesn't simply say, listen, I was there, I saw it, James and John were with me, end of story. He goes back to those who never saw Jesus, the Old Testament prophets, the word of the prophets, as the second set of witnesses. And it's a good thing that he does, because the Mount of Transfiguration makes no sense without the Old Testament. Who is Moses? Who is Elijah? And what about the cloud and the glory? I mean, what is that about? And what do we know about sacred mountains? Thus, Peter begins with the New Testament, which confirms and makes more certain what we find in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament also, in a sense, points toward what we see in the New Testament. We should pay attention to the Old Testament. We should not ignore it. God spoke in the Old Testament. He has spoken again in the New Testament, confirming what he said in the Old. So, like the apostles, we see the two things. What the prophets saw and what the prophets heard. Verse number 19. What they saw was a light in the darkness. We need to pay attention to the Old Testament for at least two reasons. First of all, it is a light shining in a dark place, pointing ahead to Jesus. The idea of scripture as light is a common theme. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. And the idea of the world as a place of darkness is also a common theme. In John 1, in him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Peter, however, does not use the standard word for darkness. He uses a word that is unusually strong and usually refers to what it is like to be in a dungeon. The squalor and the gloom of a dungeon. Into this dungeon, into this darkness of a dungeon, we have light shining. Yes, even in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is our only guide, as Peter puts it, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Until the coming of Jesus into the world, all that we have is the word of the prophets. We should not ignore them. By the way, just to remind you from 1 Peter chapter 1, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. 
It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of these things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you. Thus, they are looking ahead. In a sense, they can see light at the end of the tunnel, the coming of the Messiah, the light of Jesus shining in the darkness. And they were the only guide until he came into the world. I mentioned this once in a Bible study. uh, When I was teaching down at UCI, uh, they were doing work on the 405, and I would usually go down in the morning and come back later in, in the evening. But in the morning, they would have on these, these bright spotlights. And in the daylight, you could hardly tell that they were on. But at nighttime, they were extremely bright. This is how I see the Old Testament. In the darkness of the world, the Old Testament light shines brightly. But then once Jesus comes into the world, he supersedes that. But it doesn't mean that we say, well, the the Old Testament is nothing. We have Jesus, we have the new covenant, and so we don't need that. No, they are, in fact, important. And as Peter puts it, they are the second set of witnesses that the truth of the gospel is, in fact, true. Two things to explain. First of all, the morning star. In Greek, phosphoros, to get our word phosphorus, it refers to Venus, which catches the sun's rays just before dawn. It is a promise of coming daylight. When you see Venus light up, then you know the daylight is about to come. That's interesting, but I'm more concerned with what he says, the morning star rises in your heart, because I'm a little concerned that after seeking to establish the reality of the incarnation, that Jesus came with power, that the apostles were there, they saw him, they saw his majesty, they heard the voice of the Father, that now we might think Peter is going for sort of an inward, private, interior, personal experience. That the, that the morning star rises in your hearts. I'd be very disappointed if you were, and I don't think that he is. We must admit that there is a subjective reality to the objective reality. We don't simply say, okay, this is true out there, and somehow it not touch us inwardly at all. Um, and that's, that's not simply true of the Christian faith. That's the way life is in general, that if you see a thing of beauty, there is an interior reaction. It isn't purely my eyes are working, and if those of us with weaker eyes put on my glasses and I can see it, then there it is. But it, in fact, has a corresponding uh, activity that happens inwardly that we cannot quite express. And so, yes, if Jesus comes into the world, we don't like, oh, there he is. He came. Isn't that wonderful? But there is, in fact, to be a corresponding reality in our hearts. And there is the already not yet reality. We have been given new life, but the fullness of this life remains to be seen. So this is what the prophets saw. What did they hear in verses 20 through 21? Why should we pay attention to the Old Testament whatsoever? Well, we must understand, above all, three truths. First of all, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. You will notice the first two are negative, and the third one is, uh, the thir- is put positively. 
It's interesting that Peter sort of puts them in a reverse order. I think that I would have said that men spoke from God as they were moved. Prophecy never had its origin, and they did not use their own interpretation. Prophecy came from God, Peter tells us, and the false teachers, not by the prophet's will, not by the prophet's own interpretation. Simply put, Isaiah or Jeremiah or any of the prophets did not wake up one day and say, I have decided today I'm going to write some prophecy. And when God caused them to write something, a prophet did not say, oh, I know what this means, and give it their own private interpretation. No, prophecy had its origins with God. It is God who gave them what to say, and he gave them the sense or the interpretation of what was said, though not always as clearly as one might want. And not always, by the way. There are some times in which God gives them a prophecy and they have no idea what that is, but we now through the New Testament know what it means. There are times when God does explain. A wonderful example is in Ezekiel chapter 37. The vision of the valley of dry bones. And afterwards, God explains to Ezekiel, this is what this means. So how did God communicate his message to the prophets? Verse 21, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? I mean, this, does this support sort of a channeling type of experience or perhaps a dictation view of writing of scripture that somehow their brains sort of, they sort of, you know, they went out and didn't even know what they were writing. God just sort of channeled through them. I don't think so. You'll notice that men spoke from God, we are told. And what we find here is human authorship, that men spoke. We find God's authorship from God. But it's not a partnership of equals. And I think that is what we need to understand. Thus, we find the Spirit enabling these men. They are given something from the divine author, of which they will be the human author. But the gap is so vast that the Spirit of God must, in fact, enable them to do the work of writing the prophecies down. And thus we have what we call the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. There's a striking parallel in this passage today as Peter presents two sets of witnesses between the apostles and the prophets Verses 17 through 21 really emphasize it. First of all, when Peter speaks of the coming of the Lord, it is with the language of sight. Glory, we see with the apostles and then the prophets, light, day, morning star. When he illustrates the equal authority of the apostles and the prophets, it is the language of sound, voice, word, spoke. And then thirdly, there's a verb that connects the entire, the two sets together. In verse number 17, it is the verb came. It's the same word as carried along. That God's voice came to Jesus. We heard the voice that came from heaven, verse 18. And the prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
I said, we live in a world in which there are those who are not antagonistic to Scripture, but they don't believe it. There are those who are very antagonistic to Scripture, and how are we to answer them? How does Peter answer false teachers? Well, he says, I have two sets of witnesses who Jesus was. Those who were there when he came into the world, those who wrote long before he came into the world. And they wrote of what they saw, they wrote of what they heard. And if you look at the New Testament, and if you look at the Old Testament, they do the same thing. They point to Jesus. He is the truth. He is the gospel. And so the apostles do not, they did not create cunningly devised fables, these cleverly created stories. They, in fact, were in a long tradition from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And now Jesus came into the world with power. By the way, we've mentioned this, I've mentioned it before, but those who would deny the power of Jesus during his earthly ministry, that he did not do the miraculous, how would we have any expectation that he can do anything in our lives now? And how would we have any expectation that he will come from heaven with power at the second coming? See, the incarnation is what it's all about. If you can damage that, if you can call that into question, if you can destroy that, then it all falls down. And Peter says, no. We were there. We saw, we heard. And it's not just us. The Old Testament prophets, the word of the prophets, they saw the light. It's from a long distance, but they saw it. And they heard the truth. And the truth is, zibrid to us today from John 18, where Pilate said, what is truth? Truth was standing right in front of him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It all points to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth. But we also thank you that you have not left us in the dark without witnesses, without evidence. The apostles were there, but even the, the prophets of the Old Testament, they pointed to Jesus. And in Scripture, we have the truth of who he is. The life that we have is because of who he is and what he has done. These are not cleverly invented stories. This is the truth. We are to remember the truth. We come together in part to be reminded of the truth, to have our memories refreshed. We are to encourage each other and remind each other because on our own we might forget. May we, by your grace, remember. And in the coming days, as we continue to remember that Jesus came into the world with power and that one day he will return with power. He came that we might have life, a life that has already begun in us, and one day he will return to take us to be with him. I 
think in many ways we are more prepared or we imagine that we are to defend the faith against those who are antagonistic. But may we also stand firmly against those who are not antagonistic but would drain the gospel of all its truth. I thank you for this time together. A time when, as a congregation, we come into your presence. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.